Welcome to Good People Talk, the podcast of the Good People Fund. In Israel, Shana Aronson is the CEO of Magen for Jewish Communities, a GPF grantee organization addressing sexual abuse and exploitation in the Orthodox Jewish community. Under her leadership, the organization is making huge impact by helping and supporting survivors, raising awareness and educating in the community and beyond, and advocating for survivors in investigatory and legal channels. For more information, visit goodpeoplefund.org. For now, here's Shana and GPF co-founder and executive director Naomi Eisenberger in conversation. Shana, can you tell our listeners a little bit about Mugain and what you do? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Our goal is to address sexual abuse in the primarily in the Orthodox Jewish community, Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox communities, and in, in kind of a holistic fashion. So we have a number of different, uh, a few different kind of departments in the work that we do, and that includes the educational and kind of prevention awareness side of things. We have a number of different projects and initiatives for educational events for parents, educational resources for children, for educators. We're very active on both on social media and the mainstream media, just kind of raise awareness and get conversations going on a subject that historically has really not been talked about um, or quite intentionally has been silenced. And then we have our mental health services department. So our social workers who provide referrals for therapy, we have a number of support groups. Um, and then finally, we have our advocacy and investigation department where we support and advocate for victims through the law enforcement process, whether that be the police or social services and you know the court system, which obviously can be incredibly long and just years, really years of very painful process. So we support, kind of guide and advocate for victims throughout those processes, as well as some private investigation work in collaboration with law enforcement and with the media. My sense is that the work that you're involved in is really now first coming into the spotlight. In some ways, I guess with with many, so as with many social phenomena, there's a little bit of sort of a drip, and then it's kind of snowballed where there was no, I mean, no discussion about this topic, and then kind of a little more and a little more. And I always say that, obviously, I think that the all the credit for that really has to go to the survivors who made the decision a very not, you know, this was not a decision that that I'm sure that anyone comes to lightly, even even now when it has things have maybe gotten slightly smoother for survivors who share their stories. There is more awareness, more support, but it's still incredibly difficult. But certainly years ago when there was nothing, I mean, the the support for for survivors of sexual abuse in, in insular religious communities was non-existent. And mm-hmm. the survivors that spoke up and said, I'm going to, I'm going to say this out loud anyway, and you're not going to like it, but I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And that absolutely just completely, you know, broke, broke road and, and, and paved the way for you know, the next wave mm-hmm. of survivors. And I think every person that comes forward, no one can ever really fully know the extent and the effect of what their words, you know, the impact that they're going to have by sharing their story. But I I know it is profound because you just, you know, you have one person that hears somebody else's story and it inspires them to speak up and it just, you know, and on and on. And it's not, there going- is no going back. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not, not going-, going back. I think it's just a question of how quickly we're going to move forward. 
And sometimes it does feel like we're, you know, certainly there are days where you feel the steps back without, without question. This is deeply challenging work and the families, the survivors and their, their families, their loved ones that are dealing with this suffer tremendously still with whether it be with pushback for reporting, for speaking up, for whatever it is, we are far from fully addressing that problem. And some days I feel like, oh my God, it's like, what decade am I living in? Like, how are we still having that? But without question, we have moved significantly forward and there's no going back to where we were a decade ago. Thank God. Step back and look at what has been accomplished, even though there are many days when you feel like nothing has changed. I think for me, it's something I'm I'm acutely aware of. All we have to do, all I have to do is look in, at our, I mean, first of all, our staff, they're, right. they're, it gives me a tremendous amount of just uh, inspiration when I just see, like when I walk into our office and I see a group of people sitting around, like literally all of them on the phone, sitting in meetings, providing culturally like sensitive and appropriate support for, for ultra-Orthodox survivors of sexual abuse, like without, you know, unapologetically right there. It's just happening right in front of me. Almost every day I have a, some kind of pinch me moment of like, I would never have imagined that this would be possible. And if I just look at kind of our client list, uh, you know, at, at any given day, the vast majority of the survivors that we're supporting now are in the ultra Orthodox community. So, whereas, you know, when we founded and, and for many years, at least half up until a few years ago of our clients were individuals that were raised in the ultra-Orthodox community, and they were the ones reaching out for help. You know, it was sort of this stigma, taboo, that if you were still in the community, there was, this was not, no, you still like that, we still don't talk about it. You know, if you you leave, you can maybe then find, they're rebelling, you can talk about it. I think that now it's become, to some degree, socially acceptable, not completely, and it's still done quietly. You know, I, I wait for the day where we can set up shop on the main streets of B'nai Brock. That hasn't happened yet. <laughs> we still have a ways to go there, but it's the over 80% of our clients are currently today still in the ultra-Orthodox community. And they're reaching out for help, for therapy, to go to the police. And that is a, a massive shift. Doing this work, is, is this where you thought you would end up? I did not think that this is where I would end up when I was, I, th- I think when I was probably 10 years old, I decided I was going to be a psychologist. I don't know why. I, I do know why, because I, what I was, my understanding of what a psychologist did was that you, they just get paid a lot of money to just sit and listen to people talk. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was the original plan. And then it, it kind of, <laughs> as I got older and as I had my own experiences as mostly as a teenager, I had decided I, I wanted to work with at-risk youth. So I was in college, I was, you know, I spent some time studying addictions and, you know, anything that sort of comes up with troubled teens and those subjects. And, and I remember at some point I said, again, when I, when I was still a teenager, I remember having conversations with my friends about the fact that almost everyone we knew had been sexually abused and nobody ever talked about it. But at the time it was like, huh. And I had this idea that maybe I would write my a doctorate about this one day. Like, thankfully the world didn't wait for me to get around to writing a doctorate about the subject. And there's been a lot of research over the years um, and so much conversation, thank God. But yes, at the time it was like, I thought this was like this novel thing that I had noticed that it's so bizarre that there's like an odd as if that all of our friends were sexually abused. But I thought I was going to work with, like I said, without risk teens. And I, and I did for some time. I was the assistant director of a residential program for at-risk youth. And it was an incredibly rewarding, incredibly challenging 
few years. The organization, unfortunately, at some point closed down for lack of funding. And I had started already there. I Some of the most impactful and traumatic, I have to say, experiences that I had in while I was working in the program involved the sexual abuse of, the, of our students, the, the, the stories that they shared, almost uh, 90% of them, without, we, I once sat down and really tried to figure it out, it was about 90% were survivors of severe sexual abuse, usually rape or incest or both. And this was just, I mean, over and over again. And I had had my own personal experiences as, you know, as a child, and then again, as a teenager, of um, of molestation and sexual abuse, but it wasn't something that I had registered as being so significant in my life. It was traumatic. It was not okay, but thank God it didn't go on for very long and it wasn't the hands of somebody who I really trusted or knew well, so I didn't have that added layer of betrayal. So it just, I did never thought about it as being just how significant this was and what an effect this issue has on, on our community, on individuals, and then you know, the, the sheer number of people that are suffering with this kind of trauma, and then the compounded, you know, element of the fact that and then they can't talk about it, and there's all the stigma associated with it. Things evolved, I started volunteering for an organization that was dealing with uh, child abuse. And then from there, um, I was hired by another organization that was doing sexual abuse advocacy, and it, it evolved. And somehow I ended up here. <laughs> was, it, was this, not did this start first in America? No, Magain was founded was in, here? in Israel. Yeah, Magain was founded right. in Israel in 2011. Um, now, originally it was founded as a very, very small organization just to the, actually in Beit Shemesh, to the Beit Shemesh local community that was, and was dealing with abuse, child abuse in a more general sense, not just sexual abuse. There was a lot of school violence, um, mm-hmm. and that was originally, that was how I started working in this field. I was actually volunteering for Magain when I first so, and then things <laughs> evolved and moved over, over time, but we expanded to work in the whole, you know, all over the country. We have at any given time, uh, at any given month, we're dealing with about 350 active cases. Wow. Active meaning there was some sort of action taken. And that's not including the many, many cases that are sort of in a limbo where, mm-hmm. you know, the, let's say it was reported and now the police have transferred it over to the prosecutor's office and we're just waiting for the prosecutor's office to decide whether or not they're going to file an indictment, which could take a year or two for them to make that decision. And during that time, we might be in touch with the victim every month, every other month, depending on what they need, just to check in. Um, but that isn't even including those kinds of cases that are sort of wow. in the middle phase. So, that's an extraordinary yeah. number of cases when you think about the size of Israel. Yes. Um, and, and these are coming to you from north to south, I'm assuming. Yes. We still get, since we're based in the more in the, in the Jerusalem in the central, central area, part of the country. Yeah, yeah. We do get more cases from there, but we're, we're quite well known in like the Steirot and Beersheba, like the southern region. We get a fair number of calls from like the Tzfat, um, mm-hmm. Haifa. Yeah. It's really from all over. How do these victims and their families find you? There are obviously some that are sort of in the traditional 2022 ways that people find resources online, whether on our, through our Facebook pages or through our website. Usually though, I would say that more than half of the clients that gets us are, it's it's by word of mouth. For clients that don't have internet or don't use social media, which right. is a lot of the ultra-Orthodox community, so they're getting our phone numbers from, I, we'll get calls from people and they don't even know who they're calling. And to me, all they know is that 
somebody gave them a phone number, you know, they're, they're the matchmakers, cousins, uncle's neighbor handed them a phone number and said, they can help you. And they call this number. They don't know who they're calling. They don't know the name of the organization. And they right. just get on the phone and start. And to me, it's just, it just demonstrates how desperate people are for help because to be willing to call a number, you have no idea who's who these people are, who's answering the phone and then share the most Intimate. horrific, traumatic, yeah. yes, uh, details of your life with a complete stranger on the other end of the line is, I mean, you, you really, obviously a person needs to be incredibly desperate to take that step. So, but yes, a lot of the people reaching out to us are in that kind of position. They heard from someone and I often, I mean, I, we get up phone calls all the time from people who say, hi, I got your number from X. And I often, I don't even know, I don't even know who X is. It's obviously somebody that heard about us, or maybe we spoke to once and I don't remember their name, but we're okay. Wherever you got our number, it's fine. I, I don't like doing anything in the, in the realm of, you know, advertising or putting ourselves out there if I'm not confident that we'll be able to really handle the influx of calls that might come as a result. So the only kind of real outreach or, or advertising of our services that we did would be through the cases themselves when they hit the media, where the organization would be mentioned, and then inevitably we would have a major uptick in calls, certainly, certainly if it was, you know, somebody of a high profile nature, like a a year and a half ago when um, when we worked on the Meshi Zahab case, the direct former director of uh, the first responder organization in Israel, Zaka. So after that was exposed, uh, we had a, I think, a three times the number of calls that we would regularly get, or even maybe more than that within the first 24 hours. It was absolutely insane. We couldn't even keep up with the number of calls. So, but that was, that was it. That was all we were doing. Now we do some more kind of intentional focused outreach. Obviously, the educational events that we do do serve as some kind of outreach as well, meaning people will reach out to us and ask us to, to, to do these events. And then we will always get some kind of calls afterwards, you know, within a couple months after from people who are at the event with questions or with cases or with something they want to ask, share. And then now we have various We've thought about it a lot. What kind of outreach can we do that's really sensitive and appropriate for the community? So we've done uh, Pashkaville campaigns. Pashkavils are the notices that that are hung on the on the walls of the of the city in ultra right. orthodox communities. So we've right. done that a couple times. It's very challenging because those posters are get ripped like down. Billboard. They do sometimes get ripped out. Although I will say one of the most unbelievable moments that I have had in a long time was a couple months ago we had a we had we had ran like a did a Pashkaville run and we hung up a bunch of posters it must have been I remember it was around Purim time and we had hung up a bunch of the posters and two weeks later I was driving past one of the neighborhoods and the posters were still up on one of the in like mm-hmm. on one of the walls and I couldn't believe it I I, I was absolutely shocked that is something that have just Two years ago, I don't think that ever would have happened. That's we just left these posters up and that nobody walked by and felt the need to rip them down. And obviously we're incredibly sensitive about the wording because the goal here is not to antagonize anyone or to, meaning obviously sometimes you have to antagonize a little bit in this work. That's, you can't really get much done if you don't shake things up. That is absolutely true. But when we want to reach out into a community, you don't want to do that by offending the community. That's incredibly counterproductive. They want people to feel safe reaching out to us, not feel like we're trying to get in their face or make a point. So we're very careful about the language. It's not, you know, it's it's clear what we're talking about to any adult, but, you know, not worded in such a way that a child wouldn't understand what we're referring to, um, which I think is very important. I don't want to 
again, offend parents who have their children that are being exposed to this. They don't want them exposed to it. I understand that. So yes, we're with much thought, many hours and much thought goes into the wording of those posters. And then we also have, um, we have stickers that we put in the bathrooms and the ultra Orthodox malls and the areas with the, so, you know, things like that. How successful have you been in introducing this whole topic to a more formal education system? We've had schools and uh, institutions reach out to us over the years to ask about training. We don't have a comprehensive training for children, you know, for schools. So I, instead of reinventing the wheel, I've always, I, there are a number of different organizations that I reached out to over the years that do this. Um, and some okay. that have created projects specifically for the ultra Orthodox community. So I'll reach out to them and coordinate, you know, between the two. But I will say that what some of those organizations have shared with me that the biggest thing that they struggle with is that when they do these educational events, because that, that's all they're doing, meaning they they just do this educational that's their program. purpose. Yeah. Yes, that is their their goal. But and they don't have like a case management, you know, system. That isn't that isn't what they do. They get phone calls, people are wanting to ask them advice, people wanting help. They are totally that that's not what they do. They don't have the, the manpower, the staff, the training, anything for that. So we've partnered up a few times with yeah. organizations that are doing this so that we can kind of give the the follow-up. Because obviously it's so important to educate children, but then if the children come forward and say, okay, I was abused, then the adult is like, well, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Just want to forget about it. Then like, what have we really accomplished? We, we quite possibly have done more harm than good. So that that is the follow-up is certainly important. But we have done a number of different, usually most of the educational projects that we do are for parents. Um, we kind of work with the philosophy that uh, most education, around, first of all, First of all, that it is the adult's responsibility to keep children safe. Children cannot have the responsibility of protecting themselves. That's it's just they're not equipped for that at all. Um, mm -hmm. Even as adults, we know how difficult this topic is. So how we could expect a child. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't give our children information and knowledge and empower them and and, you know, teach them what they can. But the, the burden of this responsibility cannot be on them. And we also would like to encourage the relationship between the, the parents and the child that the parent is the again. Obviously, we have these situations, the situations where the perpetrator is a member of the family or a parent are horrifically tragic. And this is obviously not going to work there. But the idea that parents can feel empowered to have conversations with their children and to open up a dialogue and to have it, you know, kind of be ongoing. So that's, you know, most of our educational events are generally for parents. And we do them very on a very small level, very quietly. It's the idea is you know, parents will call us, they say they want to do an event, we tell them, okay, is, how many people can you fit in your living room? You know, we find a neighbor that can fit 20 people, we won't have more than 30, they just let each other know 20 people show up, we show up, we do the events, and we're gone. People have asked me over the years, how have you not been run out of town? How don't you have, you know, people come out, do right. these events, it's not acceptable. And we do them in the hardcore ultra orthodox communities. I mean, in the most insular communities in Israel, we have done these events. And the answer is that we just do it. So by the time anyone knows that it happened, we're gone. It's done already. Yeah. Like it's not, we're not making a yeah. lot of fanfare. You get the 20 parents together. We're in the room. We talk, they have our phone number. We're gone. Can you share a specific story with us? You know, obviously we're dealing with confidentiality here, but can you, can you shroud a story in some way that our listeners would get a sense of the kinds of issues that you're that you're dealing with on a daily basis. I think the cases that stand out for me the most are the ones that I feel like I've seen 
just grow and develop and evolve. And by that, I mean the people involved, you know, just over so much of their, of their lives, there are survivors that I'm in contact with that I've been in contact with for close to 10 years now, like from the beginning of when I was doing this work and that I've had the opportunity and really the privilege to see through so many different parts of their lives and milestones it is, I, and I, and obviously with the size of Magan today, I don't have the ability to be able to do that. You know, with everyone, I don't even know the names of some of the victims you're supporting at this point. Are obviously my staff do, but I don't know all of them personally. But there are still survivors that I'm in contact with who I've had survivor. I mean, who've invited me to their weddings, who've invited me to their graduations, who have asked me to come with them. I had one woman who asked me to come with her to the doctor when she found out she was pregnant just very significant moments that I get to be a part of in people's lives. And which is beautiful because now obviously I'm there because this is challenging for them, not the weddings. I don't mean that, but I mean the doctor's appointments. This was obviously, this was a challenge. There were triggers involved and that's the reason that she wanted me there, but it's still a privilege because you're, you're getting to, to be there to witness just a really important part of this, this individual's, you know, life cycle, and that's yeah. significant. And the and the high school graduations and the college graduations and the and the messages, you know, they started the army, they started college. It's really, really profound. So I think there are a few, a few situations like that that I think stand out for me the most. And and you have to really hold on to those in this work because you don't get those every day. Usually it's you know, it's every day it's hearing multiple very painful stories. But I think the cases where I got to watch it for a number of years and watch it develop, you know, from that first call of the feeling of like total despair, is anything ever going to change or happen here to, you know, to, okay, now we're five years later and you have a conviction or you have, you know, like managed to, you know, get through a certain part of therapy and make some really significant personal achievements in their lives. Those really stand out to me always. How can our listeners become advocates? You know, in, in many communities, and I would say certainly in the, in the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox communities, one of the crowns of the community are the, is the, you know, the giving and the, you know, kind of the, the, the gamachs, the, the lending services and the, and the people helping each other and making meals for, you know, people that have new babies or people, there's so many services and organizations and there's just so much good that people try to do. And when it comes to sexual abuse, we're so stuck on this, just let people go to the police that like, we forget about the, but what about the family? What about the fact that this family that just found out that their child was sexually abused is going to have days or weeks of, of chaos where they feel like their lives have been turned upside down and ended. And no one who's who's making food is anyone like helping watch the kids i mean this is not and i don't like to compare tragedies because every tragedy is in it but it's it, but you know we see this when 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 it, god forbid there's a there's a diagnosis of some kind of serious illness where the community will jump in and rally um that does not happen with sexual abuse it doesn't occur to anyone that the family is suffering like there's actually there's fallout not just on like the actual the trauma the therapy the reporting the police but the day-to-day functioning of this of this family of this unit of this couple of whatever it is this person and i would like i think that if if people can start thinking about that being a little more conscious and offering or not offer just show up and then obviously you know support the organizations that are doing this work whether it be financially whether it be with volunteering social media nobody wants to be just kind of like the armchair warrior like you're just sitting there and just sharing things on facebook and that's it that's some 
but but it's not but it's significant it is because obviously we don't want it to only be that but but i think that when you when you share a post or put up a status or whatever it is about this topic you are telling survivors in your life that you are somebody that you're a safe you're a safe address you're somebody that they, either they could talk to or they could turn to that cares about this i can tell you that even as a professional in this field when I see somebody online, somebody that I didn't previously know particularly cared about this issue, when I see them share something about this topic, I notice it. I'm always like, huh, they care about sexual abuse. And if I'm noticing it, then I'm sure that the the survivors who are feeling trapped in their own, in the silence that, the, you know, that's made, that are being choked by the silence of their community will be noticing that too. Obviously, that's right. referring to those who are online. Um, so that is significant. Shane, I want to thank you for your time and for this very enlightening conversation. It's not a topic that most people want to talk about. Many people don't even want to acknowledge that it exists. I look forward to hearing many more good things. Thank you. I really appreciate it. We're very, very grateful to be a part of this just unbelievable network of fantastic people that you guys have created. Again, I thank you very much. Thank you. You too. Have a, have a great day. 